Good morning. It's a blessing to be able to gather uh, together and to look into God's Word uh, together. I'd like to encourage you to open your Bibles to uh, Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll begin our reading at verse 15. Scripture reads, See then that ye walk circumspectly. Circumspectly here means be careful. See that you walk carefully. Not as fools, but as wise. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. I'd like to conclude here at verse 17. Decisions can be a source of significant anxiety in life. Not the small decisions that we make, probably numbered in the, certainly the dozens or maybe even hundreds a day that, that we make as we go through the day. But the major decisions in life, when we're at a crossroad and we need to make a decision to go left or right. If we think of some of the major decisions that we make, we need to make a decision based on our job or career, the school that we, we, may, we go to, uh, the place that we live the um, person that we marry, or the probably the most significant decisions we'd ever make is the foundation on which we will base our life on. What will our worldview rest on? Because that will form and shape all of the other decisions in life. And of course, the reason why these can be Uh, These can produce anxiety is because if we don't choose correctly, we will often have to live with the consequences. Sometimes they can be minor, but sometimes they can be severe. But we be thankful that God has not left us alone in that matter. He hasn't left us to sink or swim. He hasn't left us to grope around in the darkness to try to figure it out ourselves. If we look at the scripture, the few verses that we've read uh, together this morning, if I were to uh, paraphrase them, it would sound like this. Be careful how you live. Be wise in your decisions. Make the most out of every opportunity and decisions in this evil time. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is a theme that not only the Apostle Paul writes in uh, the, the, the letter to the Ephesians here that we read together, but we also see that the Apostle Peter writes something very similar. We can see in First Peter, the fourth chapter, the second verse, where he exhorts the believers there that we no longer should live the rest of our time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. So he's contrasting the life of the believer prior to when they were a believer. They didn't really care about what the will of God is or or what it really meant to them. They were just living with whatever they felt was right. But now he's exhorting them as believers that they are to understand and live after the will of God. Jesus himself said, we can read in John the fifth chapter, 
the Gospel of John, the fifth chapter, verse 30, where he says, I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. So Jesus is saying he's laying aside his own will and allowing God's will to take preeminence in his life. It was something that was a conscious decision for him to do. And is also a conscious decision, something that we need to do as well. When I first became a believer, I viewed the subject of God's will more as a as a destination for me to discern God's will in these major areas of life, to try to figure it out and discern this and then just carry it, up for, carry it out. And if I would successfully be able to do that, then I would experience the abundant life of, uh, based on those decisions that my life would not have any trouble or grief or, or stress or any of these sorts of things. And that was a rudimentary understanding or a simplistic understanding and is not something that the scripture supports. Because if we read in the scripture, we see, we get a better definition of the various facets of the will of God. As I thought of this uh, topic, and as I looked at the various scriptures, there were two themes that seemed to resonate from the scripture in this regard. One seemed to be goal-oriented, and one seemed to be experience-oriented. And perhaps to illustrate this concept, I thought of a time where probably all of us have experienced the preparation to go on a long trip, especially a road trip, traveling for a number of hours. There's preparation that goes into it, and you have two distinct personalities that typically go on a trip like that. You have those that are goal-oriented, that are looking at the destination and, 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 and looking for ways to optimize the time to get to that destination. And so if they're the ones that are driving or in charge of that trip, they will want to be efficient. They will want to minimize the number of stops to just the, the, the bare minimum for gas and, and restroom breaks, and any sort of delay is typically a source of irritation because it's getting in the way of accomplishing the goal of getting to the destination. And then you have another set of, let's say, personalities that are more experience-oriented. They don't just look at the goal, but they're looking to experience things on the journey to that goal. And so they will be the, the type of people that will enjoy stopping more frequently to enjoy the co- to enjoy a coffee or to enjoy a, a, a restaurant or to to uh, sightsee a little bit and are not as um, bothered or irritated when there are interruptions on the way on the trip. Sometimes. 
and it's certainly probably most interesting, is when both personalities are reflected in the same vehicle. Because you have opposing opposing views where one wants to do it as quickly as possible and the other one wants to make new experiences. But it's not just a personality type. It's also a generational thing as well. As we've been... Uh, some years ago, I came across an article that sort of typified the difference between those that are millennials and those that are older than the millennials, the older generation. And millennials are those that are generally born between uh, 1980, in the 80s and 90s. And <clears throat> as they did research, they recognized that the average millennial, and of course there's always exceptions, but by and large, the average millennial is more experience-oriented. They are more likely to travel and to make experiences rather than to be goal-oriented where those in the older generation would generally sacrifice experiences, would not travel so much in order to save money to buy a car and to uh, save up to buy a house or to other things that They had goals in their mind to accomplish, and they would sacrifice experiences associated with it. And so you sort of have these two um, different approaches to life. Those who are more goal-oriented, looking at a specific uh, expectation and being willing to sacrifice in order to get there, versus those who are more for the here and now and the experience. And as you look at these two in some ways, sometimes opposing, not necessarily opposing, approaches. And you look at the gospel message, what I discovered is that God's will is both goal and experience-oriented. It balances both of those expectations. And we can look at Jesus as the express image of the Father, To be able to see that he incorporated both in his life. We could see from a goal perspective as he spoke to his disciples, as he was coming up to the last days of his life. He expressed that goal in multiple other places, but this one in particular that summarizes it well in John, the 12th chapter, verse 27, where he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. This was the goal that he came and became incarnate, became a man, so that he could accomplish the goal of redemption. The atonement that was necessary to save us from our sins. And this was something that was a great sacrifice. Something that cost a lot of pain. And eventually his life. And separation from his father. But he had this mind set before him as the goal to accomplish this great redemption plan. But it wasn't just a goal that typified his life. 
The gospel is filled with numerous experiences on the way to that goal that was able to accomplish God's will. We see a few chapters prior to that, I don't know how many years prior in his ministry, this was when he met the woman at the well and had a dialogue with her in John, the fourth chapter. We have record of that. And as he summarizes an experience-oriented aspect of God's will, where he says, The hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. Worshiping God in spirit and in truth is an experience that we make on the road of life. And one that Jesus himself modeled to us, not just in the the aspect of worship as we see him as a man of prayer, as a man of... um, Uh, but also a man of action, one that demonstrated care and compassion and fostered friendships and relationships with many different people, made many experiences of sharing meals with those that were interested in the gospel message, in interested in hearing God's truths. And so he made time for those experiences on the way to his goal of providing redemption for the whole world. And so God's will is both goal-oriented and experience-oriented. So if we look at the scripture in Ephesians 5 where we're exhorted, where it says, Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. This indicates that God's will is knowable. Not only knowable, but also that we are given the responsibility to discern that will of God. It's probably easiest to to start out by looking at what God's, discerning God's will, what it is not. As a young believer, I wished, or I sort of expected, that God's will would be found in following a set of steps. You pray a certain amount of time, then uh, God will reveal it in, in in a certain way, and you just have to wait for it. And you you follow a certain set of steps, and eventually God will reveal His will for a particular big decision that is that was in front of me. But what the Bible indicates is that God's will is not discovered just by a a set of steps that we follow just routinely over and over again. And out comes a decision that we follow and and, um, life goes on. It's far different than that. Because God wants to accomplish maturity and spiritual growth in our lives as we journey through life. If you take, for example, the that of uh, marriage, which is typically God's will for many people, it is not for all, 
but for many people it is. And if that would be God's will for someone in their life, they have the strong desire for that. And if they have the expectation that just by sitting on the sidelines and waiting and praying for that perfect person to show up, they're missing a really big aspect of God's will in that matter. Because as we think of a life partner, we're going to think of the kinds of virtues that would make a great life partner, someone who is passionate for life, someone who exhibits love and joy and, and peace, someone who is patient and long-suffering, someone who is gentle and meek, someone who exhibits all of these characteristics. In fact, it's the fruit of the Spirit that we read about in Galatians, the fifth chapter. And who wouldn't want someone as a life partner that exhibits that maturity, that level of fruit in their life? Because those are highly attractive qualities in a person. But rather than us focusing so much attention on trying to find a person with all of those qualities... And discerning God's will in that matter, the first place to start in that is to start cultivating those qualities in our own life. To seek after God's will as it relates to those qualities for how we live them out. And then when we get into difficult circumstances where the fruit of the Spirit needs to be exercised in the form of long-suffering, or in the form of forgiving the other person, or in the form of loving someone who is difficult to love, or in the form of meekness, which is really power under control, which says we're willing to take the short end of the stick. This is God's will for us to exercise that first in our lives and to grow in maturity in those areas. And as we do that those qualities themselves begin to attract others that have similar qualities. And God will then be able to work out that arrangement because of the spiritual growth that has taken place in our lives. We read in the next chapter in Ephesians, uh, the sixth chapter, verse 6, where we're exhorted not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. This is not a facade, some, some, some front that we're putting up, but something that is supposed to be genuine, flowing from our hearts, flowing from the Spirit of God through us, and that we can exhibit those virtues and spiritual qualities that God empowers us to be able to live. Doing, it says, doing the will of God from the heart. It's not forced or faked, but it's genuine. And so, discerning the will of God is not just a formula. It's done through carrying out the will of God as revealed in the scripture. And as we do that, the Lord will provide next steps on the journey in our life as we make these major decisions, as he reveals his truth through the word 
to us. And so it's not a formula. And it's also not primarily discerned with how we feel. And this is something that we've often heard or even used ourselves, the term, I have a piece about it, or I don't have a piece about it. And we're on thin ice if we use that terminology or if we use that approach to discern God's will for our life. Why is that? Because if we look at uh, many of the godly men and women in the scripture and how they discern God's will in their life, it was not governed by their feelings. If you look at Moses, for example, in Exodus, the third and fourth chapter, we read the struggle that he had as God's will was revealed to him to go back from being a nomad in the shepherd, uh, nomad in the wilderness as a shepherd, to go back to Egypt, the place that he fled from 40 years prior to that, to go back and lead the people of Israel out of bondage. And all of the reasons he came up with to say, uh, I think you have the wrong guy here, Lord. You, you, you should be choosing someone else. And all of the reasons he came up with that were fairly rational. But what we see through that, those, uh, the, the reasons that he was providing that he was not the right person for the job. We see the theme that he wasn't feeling very good about it. He was scared. He didn't think that he could accomplish such a great task. And if we were to be able to go back in that time and and ask him point blank, Moses, do you have a piece about leading the children of Israel out of Egypt? I'm pretty sure we would have got an answer back. No, his spirit would have been in turmoil because of the responsibility that he felt that was on his shoulders to accomplish such a great task. And rightly so. That was an incredible assignment, something that he could not do on his own, and God reassured him that he would be with him through it. And it was the presence of God that gave him the peace to be able to carry out that responsibility rather than thinking about whether that decision or whether that responsibility would lead to peace or would would it was a peaceful decision because it wasn't a peaceful decision it was a struggle for him to get to the point of submitting to the will of God Jesus himself had that struggle as well as we read that that scripture together as he struggled in that hour of temptation as 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 but he finally submitted his will to God even though it didn't feel very good but then how does that contrast when the scripture says in Philippians the 4th chapter when it says that we are to not be anxious for anything but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to make our request known unto God and the peace of God will rule in our hearts See in that example and other examples where it talks about the peace of God it doesn't use it in terms of using the peace of God as a fleece but rather as the result that comes when we submit ourselves to God and he delivers us from the anxiety and the worry associated with it. It doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that there will not be any difficulty. 
But what it does mean is that when God is with us, it's his presence that gives us peace rather than the responsibility or the decision that he's calling us to make. And so these are the things as we consider the aspects of God's will that we need to recognize that at times we will have a struggle to be able to submit to what his will for our life, what his will for our lives is. So if we look at the revealed word of God, which tells us what God's will is, it serves as the foundation for our life's decisions. And the first foundational thing that the scripture makes very clear that his will is, we read actually just in the verse prior that we read together in Ephesians 5, the 14th verse, where it says, Wherefore, rather, he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. The scripture uses the term light, sometimes synonymous with wisdom or understanding or knowledge, that the first place to start on the path to wisdom is to submit our lives to him. We read that in First Timothy, where it leaves no room for doubt as to what the will of God is in this respect. It says, Who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth? It's an all-encompassing statement. And God has provided all things necessary for us to carry out that aspect of his will. The goal of becoming his child to become to repent and to become converted and to be adopted into his family that is god's will for your life and for my life several decades ago when i was uh, in my 20s there was a man young man that came to our church did not come from a church background and came to our church and really <clears throat> was able to integrate well into our church with youth group and with choir, with uh, Eastern camp, with the church services, and attended for multiple years. And eventually noticed there was a change that happened in his life. He never had given his life to the Lord at that point enjoyed all of the social aspects of the, of the of the body of believers that we had here and all of the ministries that we had in the church, but eventually started going his own way. And so I had several conversations with him trying to understand why he was starting to move away from the scripture that called him to repent and to be converted. And his response was that he never felt that that was God's will for him. That God never revealed that to him in some dream or vision or some euphoric feeling in his life. And so he felt that, in his, that God was passing him over and that it wasn't something that was meant for him. 
And this is the danger that we fall into if we feel that God's will comes about with feelings. Because our feelings come and go, and often the, the, uh, the, the truths of the scripture, we need to live those out. We need to decide to live those out, and then often the feelings will follow, rather than the feelings leading us in that way. And so, <clears throat> for those of you that may have never experienced the feeling of wanting to become a child of God, you may be waiting for something that will not happen for you. And that is not because God does not desire for that to be in your life. The scripture makes it plain, as we read together, that it is God's will that you be saved. And that you would walk circumspectly as and that you would redeem the time, and that you would not be unwise, but that you would understand this aspect of the will of God for your life. And that God extends the invitation, not just in this one or two verses that we've read together. If you read the scriptures and you try to understand them, you will see page after page of God's love expressed for you, his longing to be united with you in a lifelong, eternal relationship. And that is God's will for everyone's life. It's his desire and his heart's cry for that to take place. So God's will is for us to Repent and be converted and to be in his family. But it doesn't just stop there. It's not just a goal that we accomplish that once we've made that decision, we've, we've had that experience and we're adopted into the family that from that point forward, the next goal is heaven. Eternity with him. And that certainly is a, a, a worthy goal and something we all look forward to. But God has many things for us while he still gives us life and breath. His will is for us to mature in the spiritual virtues that he has outlined in the scripture. We read in 2 Corinthians, the 8th chapter, a nice summary of the Apostle Paul as he writes to the Corinthian believers, where he says... But first, they, that being the Corinthians, they first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. It was God's will for them to give themselves to the Lord and unto unto the Apostle Paul and those that were with him as the leadership by the will of God. And it says, therefore, as ye have abounded or grown or excelled in everything in faith and utterance, in other words, in being able to express the love of God, and also knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love to us. See that ye abound in this grace also. And what he's describing there in that particular chapter, the the grace that he's referring to there, is the grace of giving. Being able to sacrifice something in in their lives to be able to help someone out who is in need. And so he's bringing together these various concepts of the will of God. 
the growing in things in faith and being able to be able to express those things in faith and growing in knowledge and 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 and, and in that in that aspect when it talks about diligence another word for diligence is 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 being passionate about it caring about it and wanting to excel and abound in those graces in that those spiritual virtues that God has willed for us to grow in. See, when we're in school, it's not easy to learn. Some have an easier, depending on the subject matter, some have a more difficult time with a particular subject than others. And wouldn't it be easier if we were in school and the test comes along, if the teacher themselves would fill in the test for us. Wouldn't that make it so much simpler? Or wouldn't it just be simpler to look at the neighbors, sit beside someone who is far brighter than we are, and be able to copy the answers that are there? Not just because cheating is wrong, we shouldn't do that, but because we will miss out on the learning and the growth that comes from that learning. Many times students will ask the question, and I did this myself, and probably many of you have as well, as we're learning something in a particular subject in school and saying, when will I ever use this? This math or this aspect of history or geography or whatever subject matter that we're learning. And we feel maybe frustrated that we have to go through this process of learning something that we don't think is relevant or necessary for us to live our life. But there's one really important aspect of learning even those things that we may never learn, never use again in our life. And that is, it's exercising the, probably the biggest, probably the most important muscle in our body. That is our brain. Is exercising our brain so that we can mature and grow and be able to problem solve, to be able to learn and apply and, 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 and apply the knowledge that we have. And this is the primary role of education, is to bring us to that point. It's not necessarily the specific things that we learn that are the most important, but it's the experience of learning that exercises our mind in such a way that allows us to be successful in our life. Much like if you're out on a drive, you'll see someone that's jogging on the side of the road. The goal for that person to jog is not to reach a particular destination. The goal of that person that's that's exercising is exercise their muscles, their lungs, and their heart, and their aspects of the various the various physical aspects of the body to stay in shape because that leads to health. It's not about the specific road or or, or trail that they're jogging on or the the destination that they're going to. It's the exercising of that actually provides that value, and the same is true. In our spiritual lives as well. And as Brother Werner has been preaching through the, the uh, epistle that uh, James wrote to the believers, where it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations or various types of adversity, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. 
And so what he's bringing across in these verses is, is an aspect of God's will that these times of adversity that we come across in our lives is meant to exercise these spiritual virtues in our lives so that we learn the ability to persevere. We don't give up easily. Much like someone who is not in shape and decides to go on a jog. They're not going to last very long because their muscles are cramping. Their lungs don't have the capacity to provide the oxygen to their muscles. And they'll be, will not be able to persevere very long. Versus someone who is exercised will be able to increase their distance time after time after time. And eventually be able to accomplish the goal that required the perseverance for them to finish it and why the uh, why James then writes that that perseverance once it's reached its uh, fullness allows us to be complete and not lacking anything and that is the will of god the will of god is for us to be complete in him so that we don't lack anything that we can be molded and shaped into his image. A number of years ago, <clears throat> we traveled with our, with our family to the Cambridge uh, Butterfly Conservatory. And on the one side, it's a beautiful place to, 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 to see an aspect of God's creation. And on one side, they have uh, an entire... Uh, place dedicated for butterflies that are coming out of the cocoon. And you see how they struggle to come out of the cocoon. It is not an easy uh, start for them in life. As they come, the cocoon holds them in, and as they struggle, they come out slowly, a little bit time after time. And, and I remember the lesson that the person that was describing the aspect of how butterflies in essence, are born from the cocoon. He said, if I come and I try to make that struggle easier by taking my knife and cutting open the cocoon and opening it so the butterfly doesn't have to struggle to come out, that butterfly is doomed. It cannot survive because what happens in the struggle as it comes out of the cocoon is that there's a special fluid that comes from its main body that gets pushed into its wings. And through that struggle, its wings gain strength. And then it's able to fly. But if I were to cut open the cocoon and let the butterfly come out, that fluid will never go into the wings and will not be able to use the wings. And it'll be stuck, vulnerable to whatever prey would come to devour it. And I couldn't help to think... What an apt description that is sometimes in life as well. As we go through times of adversity, this is what uh, James is writing about, is that those times of adversity will actually help us to become more resilient in life and to be able to survive and to grow and, 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 and prosper in a way that, that adverse, without that adversity, we would be unable to achieve. And this is why he, he, he writes, count it all joy. Not joyous because the struggle is joyous, but because of the result that will come from that struggle. 
And we may not know, we may not see exactly what will come from that struggle, especially when we're in the midst of it. It's probably the hardest thing to be joyous at that time. But he's trying to raise our vision to above the moment of adversity that we're experiencing, the fire of affliction, that there is a greater work that God is accomplishing as part of his will for our life. So that we, as as, as the scripture says in Romans, the 8th chapter, verse 29, that we be conformed to the image of Christ. And that can only happen through and, and through this aspect of adversity, that maturity, that is God's will for us. And the way he accomplishes is that in our life. And that is why God often does not choose the specific, doesn't make some decisions in our life. He has made lots of decisions for us, the time that we were born, the, the gender he's given to us, the, the family that we're born in, the country that we live in. These are things that we could not decide for ourselves. They were decided for us. And in God's mercy, he has decided the boundaries of the things that we decide. But he has left a lot to us to decide. And he doesn't make those decisions for us but instead desires us to be conformed to the image of his son. And as we conform to his will by looking in the scriptures and and, and understanding the truths for our lives, then the path becomes more clear step by step as we accomplish his will for our lives. And it's not always easy to apply the, the truths of scripture into our current circumstance or to understand or to discern the circumstances in our lives and what to what the next step really is and to apply the truths the scripture god has also given us those who are ahead of us those who have made experiences that can share the wisdom that they've learned and the wisdom and, and the understanding, the knowledge that they've acquired through their life's experiences. And we can learn from them in the major decisions in our life. In fact, that's why I believe the scripture talks about that the older men teach the younger men. And the older women teach the younger women. It's not just telling us what to do, but as part of a mentorship relationship is there are experiences to be shared and and times to pray together and times to share in the scripture together and discerning the will of God as it relates to a particular circumstance that we're facing right now, whether that's some of the ones that we've already discussed or 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 or. Responsibilities that we have, a difficulty at our work, a difficulty in our family, a difficulty with a a particular aspect of our life, that we can seek counsel, godly counsel, to properly discern the will of God in that circumstance in our life. So God's will is for us to be redeemed. God's will is for us to grow spiritually in in the knowledge of that and in, in the image of Christ. And lastly, God's will is for us, is, is to redeem poor decisions 
and difficult circumstances in our lives. If we look back with regret on certain decisions in our lives, certain things that we have done or not done, said or not said, and we live with regret and wish that it could be a different way because maybe it's the consequences, those those decisions are weighing heavily on our heart or the emptiness that we experience because as, as, as part of the consequence of that, those are difficult things to live through. And especially with regret, it has this uh, impact on our life that sort of uh, saps our passion. It reduces our ability to function in the present, that guilt and shame and regret. And God's will is to redeem us from that past we, we know that in the scripture where it says in Philippians, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things that are in front. Because being chained to our past will hinder us from carrying out God's will in our life. If we look in Lamentations, the the third chapter, <clears throat> that's just after uh, the book of Jeremiah. <clears throat> going through, the Israelites were going through a time of significant trouble. And mostly because of their poor choices that they make. And they were, they, that they had made. And they were suffering greatly for it. And then we read a promise in the third chapter. Verse <clears throat> 22, it says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. When we have been faithless, when we have not carried out the will of God, or we've made maybe honest mistakes as well, that we can find compassion and mercy, that we don't need to be consumed with guilt and regret. That he delivers us from that. Why? Because great is his faithfulness. And then we read in verse 25, The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. And that is given to us as responsibility, to seek him. Wherever we are at in life is to turn to him and to seek him. Seek after him. And desire to replace our will, as Jesus did, replace our will with his will. Since God's will is primarily the person who we become, there is nothing that can stop, no circumstance that can stop that process. Even if we may have made very difficult experiences being born in a perhaps a dysfunctional home or we've been taken advantage of at work by our boss or coworkers or there could be a host of reasons of why we are disadvantaged why we are struggling and those are real and 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 we don't want to minimize those things 
but we can take the promises of the scripture that we don't have to be defined by those things. That God gives us the power to overcome them. And in fact, when God redeems them, he often uses those very same things that the devil intended for our harm and destructions to redound to his glory and our benefit. So many times we've heard testimonies of those that were stuck in some difficult circumstance where God was able to turn it around and to use the very thing that would have otherwise destroyed someone to not only be the path towards redemption, but also to use those experiences to help those others who are stuck in those same circumstances. To multiply the redemption factor beyond just our own personal redemption. To redeem those that we come in contact with. That we use the ability, the comfort wherewith we have been comforted to be able to comfort others, as scripture says. And so as we look at these aspects of God's will, both the goal aspects and the experience aspects, the goal of us becoming his children and the goal of, uh, of, of growing in maturity and the experiences God uses to accomplish that for the ultimate goal of being reunited with him in eternity. This is very clearly God's will for my life and God's will for your life. And it is something that is exciting. Something that gives hope in a time of hopelessness. It gives a reason to go on. It gives a reason to pursue God in his holiness so that we can experience the fullness of what he offers to each one of us. And we're going to transition to a song that summarizes some of these aspects And for those that are on the phone, you won't be able to hear the song due to technical limitations. So I'm going to read a few of the words. It says, this is from the teen choir a few years ago at camp. It says, are you standing at the crossroads, not sure which way to go? A weary heart and troubled mind, a hunger in your soul. You've tried the world in all its ways and they've just left you low. You don't need another dead end road. Can you hear him calling, calling out your name? Can you hear him calling, calling, come and be saved? Jesus is speaking, so listen for the sound. Sometimes it's a whisper, sometimes it's a shout. His voice has called the dead to life and calmed the raging sea, and that same voice can set you free. Can you hear it? He is calling out to you. Can you hear him calling you? Can you hear it loud and clear? Everybody, everywhere. And may we hear him speaking his will in our life through his word to each one of our hearts. Amen.